If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 16 today. We're going to read from verses 13 through 19 to get us started as we turn our attention back a few thousand years and marvel at how we got here. Because as unstoppable as it seems the church has always been, uh, as destined as it seems it was always to get to this place, it wasn't always uh, this much of a sure thing. Jesus, of course, knew it was all going to work out, but those that were around him and those that observed him and those that chose not to follow him, uh, they had their doubts about who Jesus was and where he would end up and, and what the story would be when it was all said and done. Matthew chapter 16, this is about six months before Jesus would be crucified and, and of course raised again uh, as his ministry is coming to a to an apex to a point where he's going to begin to shift his message begin to shift from doing miracles doing signs and wonders to really preaching about what he had come to do and what he was about to do the week that we've just celebrated uh, but the gospel tells us Matthew 16 Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men or who do people say that I, the son of man am? So what's the word on the street about me? Guys, I've been around for a while. I know everybody has an opinion about me and I know everybody has something to say about me, but not everyone has the same opinion and not everyone has the same idea and everybody really is kind of confused as to who Jesus is and, and Jesus wants to know what they're hearing on the streets, what they're hearing uh, in the, the, the shopping centers and what they're hearing uh, in the forums that people attend. Uh, who do people say or who do people think that I am. That's what Jesus wants to know. So they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, yeah, people think, I know that he died, but they think that, you know, you're him in disguise. We don't know how they, why they're thinking that, but some are saying that. Some say you're Elijah, back from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, you know, raised up again or reincarnated or however they thought. It was a, a, a view that we probably wouldn't have had, but they thought, hey, there's a lot of different opinions about you, Jesus. And then he said to them, because he knew that they had a, a, more, a more certain, a more processed opinion. But who do you say that I am? And they all are standing there, and it's just a few of them. They're on this uh, really immaculate uh, uh, ground uh, where this Roman temple was behind them, looking over a hillside where all these shrines were. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But they're on this hillside, way off the beaten path, way north of Israel, they look around and nobody's budging, nobody's taking the bait, but Simon Peter says, hey, I, I, I'll go. So Simon says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus turns on the, the music, turns on the sound effects. It says, Peter just hit the jackpot. And, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Peter, you're right. Or Simon, you're right. And you had help getting to this place. But my Father who's in heaven has revealed this to you. And I say to you that you are no longer Simon, but you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. A word they'd never heard come out of his mouth before. A word they did not expect to come out of his mouth. 
On this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, which means both hell and the grave, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, you will, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples, for they should tell no one that Jesus was the Christ. Because one day, it would be obvious. But not now. It was still up in the air. You know, it's hard to imagine a world where Jesus isn't a household name, right? I mean, everybody knows about Jesus. Everyone has heard about Jesus. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus. There are signs with his name on them. There are buildings dedicated to him. Uh, people say his name sincerely. Others take his name vainly, but his name is on everybody's tongue. I mean, everybody in every tribe, every tongue, every culture, everybody knows the name of Jesus. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Uh, if you ask people out in the world, hey, who do people say that Jesus is? They've got a lot of opinions about him. 2,000 years ago, even after he had made a pretty big splash in Galilee and Judea, to 99% of the rest of the world, he was still a nobody. Nobody outside of this little circle, this little period, part of the world, nobody had even heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And even those who had heard about him weren't quite sure what to make of him. Was he just a charismatic, punctual teacher? Was he a once-in-a-generation prophet? Was he a potential political figure? Could he possibly ignite an uprising that could lead to a revolution? Opinions were across the board. Some thought he'd flame out and essentially be forgotten about within a decade. Others thought he might be one of, one of the next greats in Israel's history books, up there with Moses and David and Elijah. But even his most ardent, passionate followers and fans had modest expectations when considering the world they lived in. Israel was a shell of its former self. Uh, it was a world dominated by Rome, an empire like none before it and none after it. It wasn't the days of Moses anymore, David or Elijah, where there were a hundred little nations and tribes with their own God competing each, against each other. In these days, the world was ruled by one single empire, which had a pantheon of gods, but believed that its emperor was the, the manifestation of those gods, the power of those gods in one man. Rome ruled with an iron fist, and as big as its jurisdiction was, it had zero trouble keeping everyone in line because Roman crosses were everywhere. And every one of them was a stone-cold reminder that death was always right around the corner. Not only was the world cruel and dark in and of itself, Rome was using its crosses to cross and X people out one after another. Rome leveraged its power over all of its citizens by suggesting that death was doing its bidding. Roman crosses were everywhere, from northern Africa to the deep middle, to, to, the, to the far Middle East, to parts of modern-day Russia and Turkey, to all over the European continent. Roman crosses were everywhere, and every Roman cross was a reminder and was a picture Roman crosses was a, were a gateway to the grave. Roman crosses were a gateway or were the gates of hell in people's eyes. Rome may have been a religious empire, but its religion was not one that offered people hope. The Roman gods had a saying, or the Roman religion had a saying, the gods play and people pay. 
You don't worship the Roman gods thinking because they love you. You, ro- you worship the Roman gods because they don't like you, and you're very likely to get cursed by them, and maybe, maybe you'll be spared, but unless your name is Caesar, probably not going to happen. The gods are not on your side. The gods are not for you. The gods are against you. And the Roman crosses were their mechanism to essentially erase you from history, to make you feel as if you were this tall and, and, and erase you from history. As you watched people die, it reminded you that you could be next, and you very likely were next. Roman crosses were used to erase and banish and curse people, and people that were crucified were, uh, done, were, were thought to be forgotten, uh, erased, lost forever. It was as if someone never existed. Rome and the powers that ruled the world had no intentions of sharing the history books with anyone. Their goal was to mow down as many of the world's population as possible so that nobody would be remembered except Caesar. So to that point, even those who hoped that Jesus was somebody special, someone that might change Israel's fortune and fate, most of them had their doubts if this would ever contest to the likes of Rome. If Jesus was a deliverer for Israel that bettered their generation, that'd be great. But even his greatest followers, most of them thought, listen, Rome is inevitable. Rome is unstoppable. Uh, Even if we drive them out for a little while, they'll come back in and push us to the margins because they are too big. And that's why Jesus' followers tried to manage their expectations and try to keep their hopes in check, uh, dreams in check. While they wondered if he might, uh, you know, what he might have in store for them, there was this sinking feeling that they just struggled to see a future where things were better. They struggled to see a future where things were, for a long-term, you know, future better because they just thought Rome was just going to be there forever and nobody was ever going to stop what Rome was doing with its crosses and with its power and its tyranny. Jesus knew that his followers had mixed emotions. Not that they doubted him, but they were just realists. Dozens of would-be messiahs had come and gone. People would get fired up, but it was always a disappointment in the end. And they were always worse for wear over it. It had been that way for centuries. Ever since Israel lost its kingdom that Moses and David and Solomon built for a thousand plus years, ever since Israel lost its kingdom about 600 years before Jesus, it it was just hopeless for them. That everything they had built before came crumbling down. And every time Israel would break free from the powers that, that ruled the world, it would always end up, ended up worse for them. They'd always come back under some greater power. The Babylonians fell. The Persians let Israel go back home. But then the Greeks came in. But every time Israel would get reestablished and rebuild, it would always be less pe- fewer people. It would always be a lesser version of what was previously there. So after a while, they were just demoralized. And then around 60 BC, Rome came in and just rubbed Israel's face in the mud and made them feel as if they were the most insignificant people on the earth. And and Israel was known as the heel of Rome. So by the days of Jesus, the people were just gassed. They were just out out of breath. They were just out of hope. They wanted to believe. They wanted to believe that Jesus was somebody special, that he came to set them free and change things. But would it really happen? Or would it just have an asterisk on it? Yeah, he made things better, but that was just for like three or four days or two or four months or even 30 years. I mean, but after 30 years, it all went back to where it was. They wanted to believe. They hoped. But they just kind of knew how it went for their people. But there was a select few. There was a chosen few. There were these special disciples, these 12 inner circle followers of Jesus that They were up close with Jesus, and they got to behold things that the rest of the people didn't see. 
They were completely smitten and on board with everything Jesus ever had to say. These guys were willing to put all their chips forward for him. They had nothing to lose. Most of them were nobodies with zero chance of ever making a name for themselves with anywhere else. In Judea, if you weren't from a wealthy family, if you weren't um, somebody born into a special family, you, you had one shot at making it. You, you, your only shot was if a local rabbi would, would, would call you to serve as an acolyte or serve as, as an assistant in their ministry. But these guys had passed, had blown that. They were not religious people. They were outcasts. They were scoundrels. They were rebels. They were rough around the edges. They were sailors and fishermen and tax collectors. Yet Jesus sought them out. Jesus called on them and he revealed to them things that nobody else got to see. And as he began to make a splash and everybody wondered what kind of man he might be, these 12 were making plans to move up to the big time because they, they believed that against all odds, Jesus was going to the very top. They believed that he was building a kingdom and they believed he was God's final and forever king. And they were just waiting on him to snap his fingers and rush, usher in the glorious kingdom for Israel. So Jesus had these few who were over the moon about him, expecting big things. Then there were most everybody else that met him that, that believed he was a great guy, but they doubted what he could do in the grand scheme of the world. And then there was the rest of the world that had never even heard of him and probably would never hear from him in normal circumstances. So for, long, for a long time, Jesus was mum about his plans, long-term plans. For two and a half years, he would do miracles. He would help those that were hurting. He would showcase God's power over the elements of the world. But, but it was still isolated in, in the grand scheme of things. And then one day, he taps his inner circle on the shoulder. He, he calls on these 12 disciples and he says, Guys, let's get out of Dodge for a little while. Let's go somewhere that we've never been before. That nobody else is going to know us there and nobody's going to follow us there. So almost all of his ministry took place in a very small circle around Galilee and Judea. So the, the major regions north and south uh, in, in Israel. But on this occasion, Jesus took his crew far, the, far north, farther than they'd ever been, outside the traditional boundaries of Israel. They came to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Now you probably can imagine who this city was named after. Augustus Caesar, the emperor, and then a guy named Herod Philip. Now you've heard of Herod the Great the king who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, Herod the Great had a few sons, several sons. And he, when he died, he split his kingdom, the kingdom of Judea that Rome gave him. He split it up to all of his sons. But he had a son that was left out. And that was Philip, or Herod Philip. And he asked Augustus Caesar, who was a good friend of his, hey, can you annex me some territory so that I can give Philip his own little region to rule? He's not really a responsible guy. He doesn't need much. But can you just give me a little piece of property that I can give him so he feels like he's as special as the other of my sons? So Augustus says, okay, this little land up in Jordan and near Syria, I'll give to your son, uh, Philip. And uh, hey, maybe he'll, he'll keep me in mind when he begins to develop it. Wink, wink. So Herod Philip names it after himself, naturally, because he was a Herod after all. But he also remembers where he got his power from. He names it after Caesar before he names it after himself. So Caesarea Philippi. So there Herod built a shrine to Caesar and to the Roman gods. Herod was, from a, was not a pagan. He was of the Jewish faith and the Jewish uh, uh, you know, heritage. Yet he knew that Israel's God wasn't really in charge. It was Caesar. It was the Roman gods. So Herod Philip 
built a temple in honor of Caesar, in honor of the Roman gods. So Jesus takes his disciples to this pagan shrine where all these idols were, where these shrines to Caesar were, all sorts of reminders of Rome's dominion and, and power over Israel. And it's there that Jesus asked his disciples a question that we think is silly. Because obviously we know who Jesus is. It's obvious who Jesus is. Everybody knows or has heard about who Jesus is. Even non-believers can tell you who the believers say that he is. Yet when he asks them, who do people say that I am? And he uses the phrase son of man because that was the way he described himself. He described himself as a servant to people. He didn't designate himself with a great title. He referred to himself as a servant of people. So he wasn't saying, hey, look at me. But people knew that he was more than just a man. They watched him. They heard him. They could tell. So they responded when he asked this question. And their answers are really odd. I mean, they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist in disguise. That didn't make any sense, but they thought it. Some people think you're reincarnated from the old prophets, and, and the Jews didn't even believe in that. But the pagan religions had kind of bled into the, the Israel culture. So they thought, hey, I guess this could be Jeremiah. I guess this could be Elijah. I mean, I guess this could be one of those dead guys, you know, brought back in some way. And again, they were just shooting for the moon. They didn't know. And that's what the world thought. That's what the people in Judea thought. So the populace had a lot of wild theories, but Jesus knew his disciples were not scattershot. He knew they, they had an answer. He knew they revered him as the Messiah. So, he wanted to know, uh, he knew they wanted him to be a king. He knew they wanted him uh, to, to, to pronounce his kingdom. And he knew they were willing to do anything for him. So finally, he leans into that. And he says, but guys, who do y'all say that I am? And again, he's in front of this shrine to Caesar. He's in this place dedicated to Caesar. All these pagan gods are all around him. There's literally a shrine that, that glorifies that Rome has the power of death on its side, that if you cross Rome, you'll be swallowed up. There's literally a, 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 a gateway there's, there's where, the, where, a, where two mountains join. There's a gateway in between that valley that literally is referred to as the gates of death or the gates of hell. Because when you mess with Rome, that's where you go, not just through those gates, but through to the inner parts of the earth to where people go and are forgotten forever. So this shrine reminded the world Rome was in charge. Isn't it ironic that Rome gave Israel some extra land and that extra land only reminded Israel that Rome was in charge? So Jesus says, who do y'all say that I am? And again, they're looking around. Nobody wants to speak first. So Peter says, hey, I'll go. You are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You're the one that we've been waiting for, Jesus. Jesus, we know, we know that you've come to do more than just heal a few people and make lunch for people. We know who you are. You've got the power of God on your side. And Jesus says, come on down, Simon. You, you've answered correctly. You've had some help in getting this un, un answer. God's given you the privilege of being on the front row about what he's about to do. And, and, and Simon's thinking, well, right? You know, I'm going to be, I'm like Joshua to Moses. I'm, I'm, I'm first in line. Now, another important thing, this mountain range. This region of Israel and Jordan and Syria was, uh, was located in a mountain range known as Petra. 
Petra is, is a word in, in the Greek and the Hebrew that literally means mountain range, or it refers to a bedrock, it refers to a foundation, it refers to just a large monolith that something can be built on. Since it was a mountain range that, that the people of the area pointed to and said, hey, that's what Rome is, that's what Rome, the Roman Empire is, it's a Petra, it is a monolith, it is an immovable object, it is the foundation on which the earth rests, or which the societies of the world rest, that we are on their rock, we are on their foundation, we are playing by their rules, they're in charge. So there where this pagan temple was, associated with this idea that Rome was forever, Caesar was forever, there was no rival, there was no comparison, Jesus plays into Simon's big, bold, earth-shattering confession when he says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, Jesus says, Simon, that confession was a big step towards seeing the world change. That one day, more than just you will make that confession. One day, people around the world will make that confession. He says, Simon, from now on, I'm going to call you Peter. Peter is a play on the word Petra. Petra means mountain. Petra means giant mountain range, huge foundation. Pet Peter, or Petros, means little pebble. You know, when, you, when you're walking on a, a dirt road, or you're walking on a cliffside, there's all kind of little boulders that have broken off from the big boulder. You understand what I'm saying? There's all kind of little stones that have crumbled off of the big rock. There's all sorts of uh, boulders that have rolled off the bigger body of land. So Jesus says, Peter... You're, you're, you're a little boulder. You're a little stone. You're a chip off the bigger foundation. He said, I'm going to call you Peter. But on this rock, on this Petra, on this larger foundation, on what you just confessed, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're right about that. And you're an example of all the people that are going to get into what I'm building by confessing that. Do you follow me there? Peter was a little stone that was part of that greater foundation of what Jesus was building. And Jesus says, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this Petra, on this rock, on this foundation, I will build. And you got to think, everybody in the audience that day are waiting for him to say the words, Jesus will build his kingdom. And Jesus says, I will build my church. And that's when the record snaps, and that's when the music stops, and everybody says, What? I will build my church. But he doesn't stop. He doesn't think that's a letdown. He says, in the gates of hell, the power of death in the grave will not be able to stop. As in, as if to say, right now, death and hell are raging and have all the power. But when my church gets established, it's going to be a big stop sign and a big yield, a big uh, uh, confrontation with death and hell. And when my church gets established, death and hell are going to run away in fear, cowardly away from what I have done because they'll know their days are numbered. 
But this is where it goes sideways for the disciples. Because up until this point, they thought Jesus was going to finally fulfill their desire, step into the role. They'd always dreamed him to come forward. But he doesn't say, on this rock, on this foundation, I, the Savior of the world, am going to build a kingdom that's going to overcome Rome. He says, I'm going to build my church. And, 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 and that's what's going to change everything. That's what's going to stop the reign of death and hell. Well, we've got two questions for you, Jesus. What's a church? And how are you going to stop death? I mean, we don't really, we, we, we've, we've accepted that we're going to die, Jesus. We just want to live a few good years on this earth. I mean, we've given up on living forever. Listen, everybody dies. We just want to live out as good as we can here. Can you just stop Rome and give us a good 20, 30 years, you know, while we have left? I mean, what are you going for the moon? I mean, come on, Jesus. I mean, what's a church, number one? But how are you going to stop death? So there's two things, again, that, that's immediately wrong with this. What's a church and how are we going to stop death? Now, I, I want to take this one at a time. Because they knew what church meant. It wasn't a religious term. It wasn't, obviously, a Christian term because Christianity didn't exist yet. It was a little Greek word. That, mean, that, that comes from ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word that we get church from. Ecclesia doesn't mean a, a kingdom or a country or, or any kind of big, powerful uh, you know, uh, organization. Ecclesia means a gathering of people who all agree on something. Ecclesia means a group of people who get together with one voice and one collective mindset. But, but, but the idea of an ecclesia in the ancient world was, well, if enough of us get together and enough of us, you know, pool our resources, we might be able to make a difference in the world. We might be able to protest or rally or, you know, make, uh, make some changes. But the problem was, in the world that they lived in, the word ecclesia was a pathetic, hilarious idea. Because the world was ruled by a malevolent empire. The world was ruled by a dictator. Nobody had a say in anything. There was no democracy. There was no hope that a group of people could get together and, and, and change things because they wanted to. Because Rome made all the rules. And if you disagree with Rome, they crucified you. So Jesus, I don't know what this church you're building's about. But if we get together and we all agree on something that Rome doesn't like, they'll just kill us all. So good luck on that changing the world. Good luck on that making a difference. And come on, if you think that's going to stop death, that's going to cause us to die. Jesus, that kind of organization has zero power in this world. But Jesus doubles down. I'm going to build my church, my body of followers, and read my lips. Hell won't be able to stop it. You think Rome's a threat? We know Rome is just a distraction from the actual enemy. We know Rome is really working for the real enemy, helping bury people. Rome was a plague on everyone that wasn't, that wasn't in Caesar's inner circle. Rome was propping the doors of the gates of hell open and fueling its fire. But Jesus says, mark my words. Today is the first day of a new world order. And one day, one day, my church will, be, will have the most powerful voice on the planet. One day, their song and their message will be so loud, it will fill the whole world. 
One day, you won't be able to go one direction or another without running into my church and its people. One day, there will be the fisherman called Simon that I just changed his name to Peter. One day, he will be a household name. One day, there will be cathedrals and there will be houses of worship built in his honor. One day, there will be churches dedicated to Jesus on every continent. One day, they will have, they, there will be churches that will be meeting every hour of the day around the world. One day, there will be two billion people who lift up Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. One day, schools and hospitals and orphanages and charity centers, even entire cities, will be named after and fully dedicated to furthering the work that Jesus started. Do you think they believe that? How are we going to overcome the gates of hell, Jesus? Do you know Rome? Have you met Rome? Rome uses these things called crosses, and crosses are symbols of death. You probably have a relative that was crucified recently. Jesus, you know what they do. Look at this shrine behind you. You know what this is. No one wears crosses as jewelry in their day. Nobody put crosses up as decorations. Crosses were nooses or electric chairs. Crosses were the most frightening symbols, the most harrowing sight that anyone could see. Nobody put a cross up in a religious center 2,000 years ago because crosses were reminders of the worst things of this world. So riddle me this. How in the world did we get here? Where Roman crosses are symbols of hope. How did we get here? How did that happen? How did we get to the point where we wear them, we adorn our buildings with them, we put them up in our homes, we cherish the art that glorifies them? If someone from the first century time-traveled and came into our world and they saw all the crosses on the buildings and on the signs and in our homes, they would think, wow, I guess Rome really was that unstoppable. If someone came from 30 A.D. to 2023 A.D., they would see all the crosses on our buildings, on our signs, in the pictures, around the world, and they would think, wow, Rome's still in control? They're still crucifying people? You go to Rome, Italy, and today the city is full of crosses. You go to any American cities, there are crosses on more buildings than you can count. But we would say to that time traveler, whoa, whoa, friend, they don't stand for what they used to stand for. Don't, don't, don't worry. These buildings aren't working for Rome. Rome doesn't, the, the, the Roman Empire has not existed for 1,500 years. But, but they would look at us and say, well, why, why are you glorifying their crosses? Why are you putting their crosses up everywhere? Don't you know what they mean? And we would say, don't you know what they mean? And that's the power of the message. And listen to what Jesus is doing. Jesus is building his church. He's branding his church through what he would do on a Roman cross and what would happen a few days after. Jesus suffered the absolute worst on one of their crosses. He was swallowed up by the gates of hell. He was buried. He was sealed away. He was beaten. He was, uh, he was betrayed, of course. He was beaten. He was nailed. He was crucified. He bled out like a lamb on a hill. But the story doesn't end there, does it? 
But without knowing what happens next, and I know you do, but without knowing what happens next, based on the vision Jesus cast in Matthew 16, and knowing what you know about the church today, how can you explain any of this? Based on Jesus' vision, I'm going to build my church and hell won't stop it. And knowing what you know today, that there are churches everywhere on every continent, every tribe, every tongue, Roman crosses in every one of them. Knowing what you know today, how do you explain any of this? Jesus tied everything to this promise. Jesus tied everything to this idea that there was an unstoppable church that would be fearless in the face of death. I'm going to build my church and hell won't stop it. Hell won't scare it. Death won't control it. I'm going to build my church. It's going to be fearless and bold. He was building something that wasn't afraid of Roman crosses or whatever the world came at it with because it would, be, would have the boldness and a faith that could not be overcome. So let's just think about this. When Jesus said this, everyone in his audience Everyone he ever met, even his disciples, were terrified of Rome and its crosses. They had zero confidence that anything, there was anything after this life to look forward to. They were doing all they could to cling to this life and build up as much as they could for themselves, hoping God would establish a kingdom and save them before it was too late. But here we are all these years later, defined by, upheld by the very hope and faith that Jesus said the church would be all about. So what has given us this confidence? What changed over the past 2,000 years? What took crosses and turned them from terrors to symbols of hope? What has given us the ability to stand at gravesides and not, and yes, we're overcome with emotion, but we can say with confidence, this isn't the end. Listen, when Jesus talked about this for the first time, when he first began to say, hey, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to die, they're thinking, oh, no, you can't die, you're the Messiah. Peter says, Jesus, you're not going to die, and Jesus rebukes him. When he was arrested, everyone unfollowed him, and, and please listen to this if you don't listen to anything else. When Jesus was arrested, everyone unfollowed him. There were no believers in terms of, hey, Jesus is going to be somebody great. There were no Christians as we define them. When people were, when they saw him go to the cross, they thought, hey, they killed him, they're going to kill us. Why do you think Peter denied knowing Jesus three times? Because he thought, hey, if they know I'm with him, they'll put me on the cross with him. When he was buried, none of his followers were there. Because what could he do for them now except posthumously put them in danger? There were no believers. There were no Jesus followers Friday night, Saturday night. There were a couple of women that were sentimental, but they had, they had no confidence he was going to come back. They thought he was great, but not great enough to stop Rome. Not great enough to stop death. So I ask, ask you, what changed? What made, what made things different? There's only one explanation that holds any water. There's only one puzzle piece that makes all of this take shape, of which, without which none of this makes any sense, and none of it is, any, is credible at all. 
Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. Hell won't stop it. It will march on and on and on and on and grow and grow and grow and go deep and go wide until one day every tribe, every tongue on this earth will sing and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. People will confess that there is no law of man or leader of this earth that is greater than the King of Kings. People will defer to his rules and his reign over every other agenda or plan. One day, every spring, people will assemble together on Sunday mornings before the sun even comes up to worship the man called Jesus of Nazareth. What changed? Listen, the crucifixion's a big deal, but a lot of people were crucified. And they all ended up being forgotten about. But why do we know about this one man more than any other? There's only one reason. I have a hunch that's the reason you're here today. Matthew 28, flip over a few pages and hear the familiar story. Verses 1 through 6, Matthew goes on to tell us that after the Sabbath... As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary and Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the, the women are also scared to death because they expected to find a body that needed to be anointed so it wouldn't rot and, and decay. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And these are the words that change history. These are the words that make what Jesus said back in Matthew 16 make sense. He is not here, for he is risen. Just as he said he would. Come and see the place where the Lord used to lay. He is risen. Just as he said he would. Can, can I make a, a punctual statement that I think you probably see coming? This is why Jesus and why his church have taken the world by storm. Because Jesus wrestled death to the ground. He went to hell and stormed its gates and he brought the keys back with him. And he gives us those keys. The spirit of confidence and the spirit of boldness. You never have to be afraid of the former enemies that used to rule over you. Sin, shame, the powers of this world, the powers of death and hell, you never have to be afraid because they have been defeated. Sin is forgiven. Sin is disarmed. Death has been overcome. Why? Because our Savior and our Lord walked out of his own grave on this morning 2,000 years ago. There's no other way to explain this. So when somebody says, hey, you know what, what makes Christianity different? 
You know, well, you know, isn't it just all the same? I mean, aren't, aren't Islam and all, aren't Buddhism and Hinduism and all these other religions, aren't y'all, aren't, isn't it all the same? Aren't you just all following a bunch of rules? And listen, with respect to all those other cultures, right? I mean, a lot of people don't know any better, but what we know what makes it different. What makes it different? And why should we tell the world? Because Jesus was dead. And he rose again. And had he not walked out of that tomb, we would have never heard this story. I promise you that. Listen, Jesus was great, but his sermons, love your neighbor. I mean, who would have remembered that? Right? Do good to those that hurt you. I mean, can we forget that one? I mean, who would have ever remembered this stuff? Nobody would have ever written any of this stuff. But the fact that he rose again made everybody step back and say, wow. He was right about everything. Do you see how significant this day is? Do you, know, do you understand now why did Jesus have to die? Why did he wrestle death to the grave? Why did he go to hell in our place, right? And, and defeat the enemy, put the enemy on the ground and get the keys. Why did he do all that? So that you and I might have the confidence and the brave and the, and, and the boldness in the face of everything uncertain in this life. Listen. When Jesus walked out of his own grave and the ladies were told to go tell the rest of the disciples, you know what happened when they went and told the disciples? Matthew doesn't include it in his story because I guess he thought it might would hurt the story. But Luke says, hey, I'll tell you. Luke says, these words seem like an idle tale and they did not believe them. Peter, John, James. Oh, that didn't happen. He's gone, guys. He's, uh, ladies, we love you, but he's dead. He's dead. Peter, didn't you say he was? I, I know I said that. I hoped he was, but he's not. He's dead. He's gone. Get over it. Move on. Come on. Rome's listening right now. Can you just... But, but then he appeared to his disciples. Verse 9 says that, that, he went, that they went to tell his disciples. That didn't work out well. So Jesus met them and said, hey guys, you miss me? And John says that he tells, they, they, they touched his wounds, they felt him, they, they were doubting at first, but then they realized and they worshipped him. They held him by his feet. Why? Because they wanted to see, is this really a man? Of course it is. He's alive again. You know why we're here today? Because they were so on board, they were so convinced, they went from unbelievers to believers again, inspired, they couldn't help but take the world on. And when Jesus says later on in this chapter, go and tell the world, they were, they were already ready to go. Because why wouldn't they? Because this is how we change the world. They didn't bat an eye. A few weeks later, Peter would stand up at the next big festival in Jerusalem and say this to the very people that sentenced Jesus to die. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, because y'all saw it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and you killed him by giving him to the lawless men of Rome. God has raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter goes on. He was not abandoned to Hades. He did not see his flesh corrupt. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So what changed? They saw the risen Savior. But not just that. 
Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, as in He has given us the Spirit of God in our hearts that we might know the power that rose Him from the grave. So now does it make sense? When Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and hell won't stop it, here we are, Rome couldn't stop it, all the other attempts couldn't stop it, because Jesus defeated the enemy and all its forces on Easter Sunday. The original disciples were convinced, but then they were empowered by the very spirit that rose him from the grave. We have that same power available to us. That same spirit of confidence, that same spirit of boldness, that same zealousness, that same faith. Take Jesus at his words. Six months before his arrest, he said, I'm going to build my church and the fuel is going to be boldness and power in the face of death. Six months later, he died and everybody ran away because they feared what was coming to them. But on Sunday, they were back, they were fearless, they were bold, they were resilient, they were unstoppable, and they spent the next 30, 40 years of their life going around the world telling people about Jesus. What explains this? They watched him die. They had dinner with him on Sunday night. And he said, I've given you the keys. Go and unlock the door for as many people as you can. The rest is history. You killed him. You killed the author of life, but God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses. Our sins put him on that cross, yet he rose back to life. Peter said to the very men that put him there, you killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. And the rest is going to be history. Here we are on this side of history, and his church remains. How else do you explain it? These guys weren't smart. They didn't manipulate this. They didn't make all this happen because they were such great speakers, right? How else do you explain this unless it was an, an unstoppable resurrection power that brought a man back to life and changed everybody's life that put their faith in him? So if death couldn't stop him, if hell couldn't end him, we have nothing to fear and every reason to live boldly, confidently, and passionately for him. He's given us the keys to unlock the door to new and eternal life. His resurrection changed everything. Most importantly, it can change us. It can change you. So let me ask you today. Have you been transformed by his resurrection life? We we see that his plan was unstoppable. So what's stopping you from living in this same power? We see, I'm going to build my church and hell can't stop it. Just watch me. Do you see how it was unstoppable? Do you see how it all played out? Do you see why it's all believable because of what he did for us and how he came back to life? That same power, that same power of faith and that same power of resilience, that same power of boldness, that same power of being raised up to something new, your past being forgiven, your past being washed clean. Do you see that this is the link from what Jesus said was going to happen and what has happened in the wake of his life? Do you see how it inspired his followers originally? Do you see how it explains where we are today and how we got here? Do you see what it offers you today? Fearless, bold, dedicated faith so that you and we might live for the glory and the honor of the risen Savior. So I, I gotta ask you, Jesus said all this. It happened just like he said it would. 
So have you taken hold of this faith that he wants to give you? Have you allowed Easter not just to make you have a not-miss service on Sunday, Easter Sunday, but have you allowed Easter to change you and inspire you every single day? Maybe your past is holding you back, but you can go in that tomb and see that it's been put behind you. The risen Savior goes before you to lead you and direct you forever and ever. You and I can have a fearless, bold, and passionate faith because of what Jesus did. And we can trust him because he has risen just like he said he would. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what is an incredible reminder that Jesus is every bit the Savior that he claimed to be. Father, I don't know where this lands with everybody, and I know everybody here came in the building most likely believing that Jesus rose again, but maybe today they've seen how big of a deal the resurrection is. Maybe they realize how it is the piece of the puzzle that makes everything make sense, that it is what makes the movement unstoppable. It is what has brought hell and death to its knees. It is what gives us our everlasting hope. All these years later, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and hell won't stop it. And here we are and hell can't stop it. And we don't have to be afraid of even those fearful things because you have risen from the grave. So Lord, give us a faith, give us a boldness, give us a zeal, give us a passion for you that we might have the same power that rose you up alive in us, setting us on a path for your honor and for your glory. God, if there's anybody in the house today that just would like to come to, to, to before you today and just ask for, ask for this power to revive them and refresh them and give them a clean start to help them put the past behind them, to get their eyes on Jesus, to be, to be purified from the inside out, to let go of things that are holding them back, to take hold of the power that you have set before them so that they might live a life for you and for those that they love that honors and glorifies Jesus forever and ever and ever. Because it is because of him that we have this hope and only through him that we get this chance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.